Well, let me invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me this morning to 2 Peter chapter 2, and we'll be looking at the first uh, three verses this morning, and the focus of the passage is truths about false teachers. So 2 Peter chapter 2, and I'll start reading in verse 1. So it's our, uh, again, our great joy and privilege to read the inspired Word of God. As Peter is writing this, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes for the warning and the building up of the body of Christ. So 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will introduce secretly destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word. On April the 18th in the year 1775, the British soldiers stationed in Boston were about ready to make a raid. They wanted to go to Lexington to arrest two of the, the great leaders of the American uh, Revolution, Samuel Adams and John Hancock, and from there they wanted to make their way up to Concord and capture and destroy some military stores that were gathered there. Paul Revere, a silversmith by trade, when he learned of the British plans, he and a few others set out to warn the patriots to alert the Minutemen, and Paul Revere set out on a horseback and as he came through the houses and the villages on his way to Lexington, he would stop and say, the regulars are coming. Not the British. Colonists all kind of thought they were British. So he probably said more like the redcoats are coming or the regulars are coming. Those were powerful words and the needed message because they were on the ground moving towards them at that moment. The Apostle Peter is functioning somewhat like an apostolic Paul Revere. He is bringing to the churches a message, a warning, not that the regulars are coming, but that false teachers are coming. And he is sending out his letter, as it were, on horseback, going through all the different churches of Asia Minor, warning them, false teachers are coming. Be prepared. Be ready. So in effect, this section of all of 2 Peter chapter 2 is the Apostle Peter functioning as a Paul Revere, if you will, to alert and warn the churches of this impending attack from the enemy. The people that Peter is warning them about are far more dangerous and far more destructive than British regulars who are coming with their, their muskets and their guns. 
Peter is warning his churches of a far greater threat because these false teachers are coming not just with bullets, but with destructive heresies. To believe and to follow will have eternal consequences, not just physical consequences. Peter, of course, is writing this to help these Christians face the future. He warns them of the apostates among them who are guilty of spiritual malpractice as teachers. Peter is preparing his readers for the continual flow of dangerous, destructive teaching that will come into the church. So that wherever you find the true church, it won't be long until you will find satanic counterfeits. As someone once wrote, Whenever God erects a house of prayer, the devil always builds a chapel there. And I think that is true. Jesus warned us in Matthew 18, verse 7, that it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. So, Peter and Paul and John and Jude and the author of Hebrews all warns their readers that false teachers are coming to the church. And so Peter is contributing his warnings to that genre. As we start out in verse 1, we began to see first several things about the coming of the false teachers. And Peter is going to emphasize the coming of the false teachers, number one. Number two, the conduct of the false teachers. Number three, the consequences of the false teachers. And finally, the condemnation of the false teachers. So we pick it up in verse 1, where Peter again says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. Now notice he references false prophets were among you. And here he's obviously referencing the the plethora of Old Testament false prophets that plagued the nation of Israel. Uh, If you read Jeremiah, one of Jeremiah's themes is to expose and attack the false prophets that were ministering within Israel, who are claiming to get their prophetic messages from God, but Jeremiah says it's coming out of their own imagination. It's coming out of their own heart, not from the heart of God. But Peter begins with that, but he quickly moves on when he says, in verse 1, that there will also be false teachers among you. So in effect, what he's saying to the churches is that these false teachers are coming, and in effect, this is establishing a pattern. They're always going to be with us. They were throughout the Old Testament ages, and they're going to be throughout the New Testament ages. Uh, They had them in the first century. They've had them in every century and every age and every decade since then. We have them today. Oklahoma City has them today. And even though he's using the future tense that there will be false teachers among you, he clearly understands that there's some now among them. There's going to be more to come in the future. 
Notice what he says also in verse 1, that they will arise from within the church. He says there will be false teachers among you. So they're going to be within the church, these false teachers. They will claim to be Christians. They will say they believe in Jesus. They will have been baptized. They take the Lord's Supper, but eventually they are exposed as enemies of the gospel within the church. Jesus had given several warnings about this himself. In Matthew 7, for example, he says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. See, they, they mingle among the sheep. They think they're a sheep, but they're really ravenous wolves. They're sheepy on the outside, but they're wolvy on the inside. And that's how they deceive and trick people. Paul will go on to say in Acts 20, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from, and from among you, your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So from among your own selves, men will arise. They will come up within the church. This type of false teachers become somewhat like Satan's fifth column. If you're familiar with that expression, which originated in the Spanish Civil War back in the 1930s when General Mala advanced on Madrid with four columns of soldiers. But what Madrid didn't know is that he had a fifth column embedded inside the city working from within to help advance the cause and ultimately their overthrow. That's the fifth column. They're already within the camp. They're hiding. They're secret. But they're very active in overturning and bringing defeat to the city. In other words, these false teachers are enemies inside the church. They become like a spiritual Benedict Arnold. They are the tares growing up alongside the wheat in the field. Again, the wolves in sheep's clothing that look like sheep, but in fact they are not. Jude describes them as hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear. So Peter is launching his first point in verse 1 when he's saying the false teachers are coming. Be ready. They're already there. Be alert. The second thing Peter will emphasize is the conduct of the false teachers and we see this also in verse 1. Notice their conduct. First, he says, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. They will secretly introduce their false teaching. The concept of secretly introducing is the idea of a devious design. It's an underhanded way to influence people by using deception. 
It's similar to what Paul said in Galatians 2, verse 4, when he said, and it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. It's that kind of dishonesty in what they say and how they present it. They secretly introduce their heresies. In other words, they smuggle it in. Just like on our southern border, you smuggle in the drugs, the fentanyl that's killing scores and scores of people in our own country. Or you smuggle in these poor girls and give them over to uh, illegal child prostitution. Or you smuggle in just illegal aliens. It's that secrecy of smuggling it in under the radar, if you will, and that's their technique. They want to propagate a pseudo-gospel. They'll call it the gospel, but it is a pseudo-gospel, a false gospel. These false teachers, you know, this has happened in the church when liberalism started infiltrating the church a while back. It would infiltrate the seminaries, the denominational leadership, the leading writers and preachers, and profess to be orthodox, but they use devious methods to turn the gullible away from the gospel. There are some students in a Methodist seminary that told another about their professors who encouraged them to use certain words of Scripture, the great terminologies and language of Scripture, but by it mean something else the liberal ideas that they were being taught. Matter of fact, when I was in seminary, one of the other seminaries in the same city was doing this very thing. After the Lord saved me, I went home and had a a conversation with the uh, minister of my home church. Happened to be Methodist because Methodism is not all, but a large part of Methodism has been greatly influenced by liberalism. But I asked this Methodist minister three questions. If he believed in the virgin birth, if he believed that Jesus died on the cross to actually pay the penalty for our sins, and did he believe that Jesus bodily rose from the dead? And he denied all three of them. And I bet hardly anybody in his church understood that he was an apostate because he kept using the same language of Scripture. But he just wouldn't let people know what he really meant by that and gradually in his little Bible studies and studies, he would probably try to infiltrate them, persuade them that his ideas were more accurate than their old-fashioned, archaic ideas. In other words, what these students said about their seminary professor is basically they were being taught to lie in the pulpit. They become more like theological taxidermists You've all seen stuffed animals. They look alive on the outside. They look like they're real until you get close, then you realize there's no life in them. They're just fake. Oh, it's it's the real hair, the real skin, maybe the ears and the eyes. Not the real eyes. I think they have marbles for those. But the animal's dead on the inside. They've completely changed out the inwards. And so they use language the same way. It's the same language, same letters. You pronounce it the same way, but they've gutted it from biblical truth. 
That's the secret introduction of these destructive heresies. And notice how Peter describes them. They've secretly introduced, and again, they are destructive heresies. He's emphasizing heresies as ideas and teachings that are contrary to the gospel. They're contrary to orthodoxy. But they're destructive, he says. And Peter uses this word five times in this letter, destructive. And it's always ultimately of eschatological judgment, end-time judgment. So in effect, that if you believe these things, it's going to send you to judgment. They are destructive, false teachings, heresies. And their teachings destroy the gospel, the essential truths of Christianity, and these false teachers are destructive. They're like, they're like termites that enter their way into the house and they chew away the wood of the cross and they replace it with their own debris. They present a different Jesus, a different cross meaning. They're like a, a cancer within the body, a tumor that grows and spreads until it, it finally prevents the vital organs from functioning correctly and the organs fail until there's death. And if you follow their, their teachings, you end with eternal punishment as well. Now, Peter is not talking about just secondary issues that believers differ on. There's a a ton of secondary issues for people who know the Lord and they know the gospel differ on. He's not talking about secondary issues. There's, there's many, many of them. He's talking about attacks on the major aspects, truths of the gospel. Paul had to say something similar to this to the Corinthian church when he basically rebuked them, when he said, if, if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom you have not preached, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. What's he doing? He's admonishing the church at Corinth that, look, there are these other people out here preaching a, a different Jesus, and you don't even understand it's a different Jesus. You bear it beautifully. You're not being critically. You're not examining the Scriptures to see the nature of their Jesus or their gospel or their spirit. And so he's admonishing them. You bear this beautifully, and that's not a compliment. But that, in fact, is going on. People were preaching Jesus. It's just not the Jesus of the New Testament. A gospel, but not the gospel of the Lord. A spirit, give you all these experiences, but not the Holy Spirit. And so Peter is doing the same thing. These kinds of false teachers will lift up the cross, the flag of the cross, if you will, but they have a tendency to kind of twist it and turn it until it becomes more like a skull and a crossbones, showing that really basically they're pirates in the church, trying to mutiny, trying to take over the church. That's what Peter is warning them about. He goes on to add, not only are they secretly introducing destructive heresies, but they're even denying the master who bought them. 
They're denying Christ. Now, what's the nature of this denial? Well, Peter doesn't get into it in this verse. He gives hints as we go through the rest of chapter 2. But there's two basic areas of denial. There's doctrinal denials and there's moral denials. The doctrinal denials are they will deny the person and work of Christ. They'll deny the Trinity. Benny Hinn said there were, at one point, I think he's repented of it, but he said there were nine members of the Holy Trinity. Not sure how you come up with nine. They'll deny the deity of Christ. They'll deny the humanity of Christ. You'll deny the atoning death of Christ. You'll deny the second coming. You'll deny the future judgment. There's all kinds of doctrinal denials. They'll say, well, Jesus, yeah, he was a good man, a good teacher, good prophet. He may have been divine in the sense that we're all divine, but he was not uniquely God, they will say, nor did he exist before his birth, nor was he born of a virgin, nor did he rise bodily from the grave. But he's our Savior. He's our Lord. We believe in Jesus. We follow Jesus. And it is not the same Jesus. Liberals... uh, One of the hallmarks of liberalism is that it denies the supernaturalism and the inspiration of the Bible. The Bible is only a collection of human writings or folk tales, legends with no historical value. Neo-Orthodoxy claims that the Bible contains the Word of God, but isn't the Word of God. It contains existential truth rather than factual truth. The stories of the Bible are only there to help us experience and connect with God, but you can't really rely upon them as historical or factual. Subjective experience rather than objective truth is the foundation of neo-orthodoxy. And sadly, we have people today that are in that camp. Andy Stanley denies the inspiration of Scripture. You also have like the social gospel today where the emphasis is not on personal need of salvation from our sin because there's a day of judgment coming and if I stand before God in my sin, I will surely be condemned. But Jesus Christ came and died on the cross. He paid the complete and full penalty for the sin of everyone who turns and trusts in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. The social gospel doesn't preach that. Social gospel, it's all about changing our culture. It's all about righting the wrongs. It's all about salvation of society. Stopping the evils of poverty or ignorance or injustice. It's all about that, and they've totally neglected the biblical gospel. Now, obviously, as Christians, we, we need to have a sanctifying influence upon our culture, not denying that at all. But the social gospel, that's where all the emphasis is. That's where all the preaching is. That's where all the direction. Just get out, and we need to change culture and change society, and that's the gospel. We need to save our society. But you don't hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
So there's doctrinal denials that these false teachers are guilty of. They have denied the master who bought them. They've denied the truth about him and the gospel. But the other type of denial is the moral denials, where they deny the lordship of Christ. They deny the master who bought them. Oh, they'll say, I believe in Jesus as my Savior, whatever they mean by that, but I, I don't necessarily have to have him as my Lord. So I can come to Jesus and get saved, but I can still live in my sin and live any way I want to. They deny the Lordship of Christ in their life, the claims that he has upon them. So this denial is a form of antinomianism that they are not living according to God's commandments, but rather they think they have the freedom to live according to their sensual lusts. Now, people in the ministry, elders, deacons, Sunday school teachers, there are three things that we all need to be on guard against. There are three temptations that Satan is continually trying to ensnare us with, and that's money, power, and sex. And sadly, there are many that fall in one of those areas. And if we're able to stand and not give in to those, it is only but for the grace of God go I. Because every man is tempted by those things, and particularly when Satan targets people in the ministry, He'll come at us with full force to try to bring us down in one of those three areas. And again, it's only by the grace of God that any of us avoid falling prey. But in verse 14, later on in 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter will say that these false teachers have eyes full of adultery. That's a sexual sin that he's going to primarily expose these false teachers So not only do they deny the Lord doctrinally, but they deny Him morally because they bring their own pursuit of sexual lust within the ministry and the confines of the church. And we have many failures, sadly, even today. Joshua Harris, megachurch pastor, renounced Christianity, left his marriage. Jim Baker, sexual abuse, accused of by several women in money fraud, Jimmy Swaggart, adultery, porn addiction, Bill Gothard, sexual assault, harassment, rape, molesting, Doug Phillips, sexual abuse, assault against women, Mark Driscoll, plagiarism, emotional abuse, misogyny, and misuse of church funds. The list goes on and on. And that's why you need to pray for people that are ministering. We need to pray for everybody, all the men, all the women, because we stand only by God's grace and mercy. And we need the prayers of the saints. We all need them because Satan wants to bring us down. And one of the hallmark features of these false teachers is not only was their teaching false, their lifestyle was false. And they were bringing in other people into that. Notice what Peter goes on to say about their conduct in verse 3. And in their greed, 
they will exploit you with false words in their greed. Again, if you drop down to verse 14, Peter will say of them, they have a heart trained in greed, accursed children. In other words, these, these false teachers are greedy. And the main focus of their greed is show me the money. It's like how many private jets can you get? How many Rolls Royces do you have in your garage? Or how many mansions do you own? Sadly, for a lot of these false teachers, it's all about the money. Remember the Didache that I referred to a while back uh, when we were in First Peter? Uh, they, they began to see this happening even later, late in the first century. So they said if a traveling preacher comes and he stays with you for more than three days, he's a false teacher. And if he asks for money, he's a false teacher. So they actually made some rules to guide the churches and how to deal with these, with these people. But Peter had firsthand knowledge of this. Remember Simon the magician in Acts 8? Simon saw Peter bestowing the Holy Spirit by laying his hands on those who had come to faith under the preaching of Philip. And he laid his hand, Peter laid his hands upon them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. And Simon, the magician, came up to him and said, I want that power. I'll buy it from you. How much? What's the price tag? Name the price, and I'll sell it to me. I want the power. And he's probably referring not only to the, the, uh, just the possibility of power, but also the profit, the potential of profit that would come from that. And Peter immediately called upon him to repent of his wickedness and pray for forgiveness. So Peter saw this kind of stuff even in Judea. This word for exploit, he will exploit you with false words connection with the word greed these are these are monetary words the word exploit normally means in in the context of business buying and selling and i think what peter is saying here for these false teachers is that for them religion is a business it's just a business it's a way to make profit it's a way to grow rich and wealthy and they will exploit you with notice false words they will lie to you they will deceive you they will lead you astray so that you come under their control they'll tell you what you want to hear so you'll grow the church will be humongous and more revenues coming in to the coffers and sadly again it reminds me a lot of the health wealth preachers of today will preach if you're if you need more money then go take out a loan and give it to us. If you want a healing or you want a miracle, just give money to us. You need a, your prayers answered, then you send in your check with your prayer request and we'll pray over it. Just send in the money. And I don't know if you remember, I certainly read about it, Robert Tilton back in the 90s, who was preaching this, send in your prayer requests and I'll personally pray over every one of them and stick a check in there with it as well. 
So all the mail would come in, and his ex-employees said he would open up the envelopes, or others would. He'd take out the check and throw the prayer request in a, in a garbage bag. He went on to say that he prayed over so many of those prayer requests, he actually contracted poison because of the ink. And it probably never happened. But it's a kind of greed to exploit people with false words, to profit from them. They care less for the sheep and more for their wool. And instead of feeding the sheep, they fleece the sheep. In some years, Robert Tilton brought in about $80 million a year. The ministry can be very profitable if you're full of greed and exploiting people with false words. And then quickly, number three, Peter speaks of the consequences of these false teachers in verse 2. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. Many, many in the church will believe it. Many will be seduced by it. Many will be persuaded and leave the faith to embrace a false gospel because they're so effective and they're so persuasive. And this is the danger. And Peter is saying, look, many, not just a few, but many will fall under their influence and give up the faith for this false gospel. It's amazing that word many. It's a bit terrifying when you think about it. Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. He said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? But he'll say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you, but many, many will say that. It says, for many will come in my name. Not only will there be many who follow them, there'll be many of these false teachers saying that I am the Christ and they will mislead many. Many false teachers, many followers. In Matthew 24.10, at that time many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. See, this is the burden of Peter's heart because he knows it's happening. And it's happening today. And it's happening now. That Satan brings in these false gospels that sound so equitable and they sound so plausible and people buy into it. And they don't like the harshness of the gospel, so they want a simpler, kinder, more loving God to worship. And so they throw out the scriptures, and they create a God that's more satisfying and appealing to them. And many will do that, they say. Paul adds to that, for we are not like the many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Even in Paul's day, he knew that he was out there and there were many preaching this other gospel. And he has to distinguish himself from them. 
And in Philippians, he says, For many walk of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Many walk that way. So Peter is certainly showing his great concern, his great desire to stir up the church, to be aware of this apostasy that has a tendency to come in. Now notice again, as he deals with their consequences, he says many will follow their sensuality. And this word can have a broader idea, but a lot of times it has to deal with sexual lusts and desires so that people do what they want to do. Now, if you had to understand the, the background of what's going on in that culture, that day and age, is that some of the pagan goddesses and temples uh, practiced a lot of prostitution in the worship of their god. For example, in worshiping Aphrodite and worshiping Venus and all the different fertility rites, these temples would employ temple prostitutes as a means of worshiping the god or the goddess. And it was all over the place. And this was the cultural values of the day. This was the acceptable behavior in society. And the church began to model what was going on in the pagan religions around them. And if you're talking about appealing to a worldly man, mix religion and immoral sex, and you have the perfect religion in the eyes of the world, you, you get it all. But that's what these false teachers were now bringing into the church, that propensity of immorality along with the worship of God. So they're being conformed to the image of the world. And notice Peter says the result, the, con the second consequence is that the way of the truth will be maligned. Rightfully so. These Christians show themselves to be hypocrites. We're all hypocrites to a degree, but not to this level. And so the way of the truth will be maligned. The outsiders will look at the church and say, look, look they're no different than we are. They claim to be holy. They claim to worship by holy Jesus. Look at their lifestyle. They're no different. And they will malign Christ, the gospel, and the church. And that's always a, a grievous thing. And Lord, help us. The last thing that Peter emphasizes is the condemnation of these false teachers, where he says in both verse 1 and also verse 3, when he says that they bring swift destruction upon themselves, and in verse 3, their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. There's a bit of an irony here because in verse 1, they bring in destructive heresies, heresies that destroy, and the irony is those heresies are going to destroy them too. They're going to destroy other people who follow them, but they're going to destroy these false teachers as well. The same word is used here for destruction. Notice in verse 1, they bring swift destruction upon them. Either it's coming soon or it's swift when it comes, whenever it comes. But then in verse 3, again, their destruction is 
Their judgment is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. In other words, these false teachers don't know it, but they're sitting on death row and the clock is ticking and their day is coming. It's not idle. Their judgment is not asleep. It's watching. The day is coming and it will take place. So Peter is doing everything he can to try to stir up the church to be aware of the danger, to be aware of this fifth column that's sneaking into the church unawares, bringing in their false teachings, sounding so plausible, influencing many who will not only believe their lies, but their lifestyle will be perverted into an ungodly lifestyle as well. Obviously, Peter didn't believe in universalism. They are bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Their judgment from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. So Peter, in effect, is that apostolic Paul Revere, sending his letters to the churches and saying to them and warning them of these false teachers are coming. False teachers are coming. They are here and more are coming. And that's the message, I think, that we need to be mindful of today. It's a message that we need to heed every generation of Christians of the church until Christ comes back needs to heed these warnings. Satan is constantly at work establishing his fifth column within the church. He wants to build his satanic chapels within Christ's temple. He wants to sow his tares among the wheat. He wants to send in his, his wolves among the sheep who ultimately will devour the sheep. And Peter wants the churches to be on guard for the gospel, to guard the treasure entrusted to us, to defend it against the attacks of the enemy. And he reminds us that we are in a battle and we are in a war for the gospel and the foe is relentless. But to end on a positive note, Christ has promised that He will build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's what we rejoice in. That is our hope. Not in our intelligence, not in our discernment. It's Christ in His glory is going to protect and build His church. But we need to be aware of the dangers. We need to be responsible. And we need to pray for God to continue to bless and enrich and save and spread the gospel and, and build His church as He promised that He will. So we have a great hope, a great confidence of what the Lord is going to do, even in the midst of all these false teachers in the church, the Lord will continue to prevail through the gospel and build His church. Well, we can rejoice in that for sure. Well, with that in mind, let's close our time with a word of prayer. Our Father God, we want to thank you, Lord, for the warning that Peter gives us that is applicable for the church in every age. And Lord, we do pray for the discernment. There are many things going on in the church today that we need to keep an eye on. But Lord, we realize that uh, if we stand, it is but for your grace. Lord, guard our hearts from pride and arrogance. Lord, for what do we have that we have not received? And if we have received it, why do we boast as if we didn't receive it? 
So Lord, guard our own hearts from being self-righteous and and proud, but give us a heart of compassion to see the truth proclaimed, to see sinners come to, to see their sin and see the glory and beauty and love and grace of Jesus Christ with his open arms that if any sinner repents and believes in him, he has promised to forgive them and give them this incredible inheritance of eternal life. So Lord, by your Spirit, build your church, we pray, for the glory of your name. Amen.